This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, and welcome to another week of a busy time here at Northwest News Center. As I share each and every week, we go among the desks of our news reporters, our editors, producers, our news anchors to find those stories that matter most when it comes to lifestyle, employment, education, recreation, sports, and so much more of why we love the Northwest, even some national stories and how they affect us here locally. So what do you say we get started? Here are the stories we have for the week ending December 17th. A not guilty verdict in the Pierce County Sheriff's trial, a new snapshot of Washington State's economy comes into focus. Also, more COVID, flu, and RSV concerns in our area. It all happened this past week. Now, a way for you to catch up. Here we go. And let's start with a story to have much attention for the week. The jury has reached two non-guilty verdicts in the criminal trial of Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer, Ryan Harris of Northwest News Radio, and their decision. After a trial that lasted nearly two weeks, Troyer and his attorney sat anxiously awaiting the final word from the jury. Judge Jeffrey Yons, who was brought in from Kitsap County to promote impartiality, read the verdict. Verdict form for count one reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of the crime of false reporting as charged in count one. Verdict form for count two reads, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of the crime of making a false or misleading statement to a public servant as charged in count two. The case was filed after Troyer's January 2021 run-in with black newspaper carrier Cedric Alzheimer, in which Troyer told dispatchers Alzheimer threatened to kill him. Prosecutors from the state attorney general's office tried the case, arguing Alzheimer never actually threatened Troyer, a story they argue police backed up, while Troyer maintained he never denied being threatened. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Police officer staffing and Violent crime among the hot-button issues during a confirmation hearing of interim Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz. During his two years as interim chief, Adrian Diaz has watched the number of officers on his police force drop to a 30-year low. We need to make sure that we encourage people to report crime. We know that sometimes our response times are longer, but we really have to understand how we put people in the right places at the right time to help drive overall crime down. But hiring is slow, and projections show an increase of just 18 officers by late 2024. Councilmember Andrew Lewis is pushing a reorganization of Seattle PD. That metric alone is not going to be enough to meet our charge or obligation on public safety because the people in my district can't wait anymore for this. They just can't. The chief was peppered with questions and defended his objections to a homeless megaplex in the Chinese International District that was later scrapped. I had some great concerns with just the amount of shootings that we've had in that community from our senior citizens walking down the street feeling unsafe. The final confirmation of Adrian Diaz as Seattle police chief could come as early as next month. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, John. The fentanyl crisis has had a huge impact on the United States, presenting the Drug Enforcement Administration with what many say has been its biggest challenge. The response is not grading out well. Stephen Rich. A story for the Washington Post we discovered, and Bill O'Neill of Northwest News asked the questions. Stephen, the case can certainly be made that the response has not been up to snuff. What are we hearing about these failures, and more specifically, how did the DEA fail? What we know is that the DEA is not the only agency to fail. Basically, the entire U.S. government has failed at one point or another over the course of basically 20 years. We are only where we are right now because the DEA failed early on to curb opioids, prescription opioids, which then led to heroin, which has all then led to fentanyl. And so over the course of the, these couple decades, we've seen over and again, when the U.S. government decides to respond, it's often late. And at that point, they're responding to a thing that doesn't exist anymore. One of the examples to that is that 
in 2017-2018, the Trump administration started going after China for fentanyl in the United States. But by that point, China basically wasn't shipping anything into the U.S. It was all coming in from Mexico, made exclusively in Mexico by the cartels. And so we were responding to an issue that just didn't work. And on top of that, building the border wall didn't particularly stop the flow of fentanyl because fentanyl has always been coming through legal ports of entry. And while there was some technology invested in around that same time. It still hasn't been implemented uh, in lieu of trying to build the border wall. Obviously, this was all happening in real time. What could or should have been done differently, though, to approach this? It's hard to say. I think that, you know, one of the things that a lot of people will talk about is wanting to criminalize the people behind this. But the truth is that a lot of this stuff, people became addicted off legal pain pills. And so what could have happened would, would have been if drug companies had talked about how addictive these things were, if the DEA had tried to step in and limit its use. But the truth is none of those things really happened until it was far too late, leaving millions of Americans addicted to pain pills and with basically nowhere to turn to get more of what their body desired. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. We are where we are right now. But are any of these critiques that we're looking at being applied now to the situation? The Biden administration says it is starting to screen more at the borders. It has installed a couple of them, but the system itself is not automatic, which is sort of rendering it not so useful right now. You know, their goal was to scan well more than half of all the vehicles that were crossing the border up from basically one in six percent for cars and trucks. And they're still not there. And they're still not there at the two largest points of fentanyl coming into the United States, which, which are south of Tucson and in San Diego. So, they're they're making movements, but the movements are not nearly enough to sort of stifle the, the massive amounts of fentanyl that are pouring into the country. And of course, there's a lot of politics at play when you, you deal with the border anyway. Does that have an impact at all? Yeah. So there's a lot of focus on the border, but the focus from Republicans tends to be on immigration and Immigration and fentanyl tend to get mixed together, even though they are two very separate issues. Uh, You know, there have been studies out there that say the vast majority of fentanyl brought into the United States is brought in by U.S. citizens. And so the, the problem is when you can't divorce those, it's really difficult to tackle fentanyl because fentanyl just sort of gets swept up in this. And all of the solutions tend to be things that don't actually work to stop. That's Stephen Rich, and you can read much more on this online. Just go to WashingtonPost.com. Moving along, how do you keep someone who's been drinking too much from getting behind the wheel? Apparently, there's an app for that, courtesy of a Washington resident. And to think something this cool came straight out of high school. So this was like an optional kind of thing from my AP computer science teacher. Meet 15-year-old Advaita Motkuri. Her school project for AP computer science involved taking a facial recognition application and re configuring it to detect differences in the pupil of an eye, specifically after someone had been drinking. Her teacher should probably get the credit for encouraging the sophomore to enter the Central Washington Congressional App Challenge. But I didn't know about this contest before, one week before the deadline. She didn't know until last minute either, so she was like, hey, here's this opportunity if you guys, you know, want to try. And try she did. Here's a clip from her submission video. Intoxicated driving plays a big role in daily accidents. Every day, about 28 people die in the United States in drunk driving crashes. This is mainly due to a false sense of relaxation and confidence. Remember, she's 15. My main research question for this year was to see if there was a relationship between alcohol and drug consumption 
and also the pupil dilation of an eye. Her reconfigured smartphone app not only detects intoxication through someone's pupil, but it instantly calls Uber for a safe ride home. Advaita is the winner of this year's Congressional App Challenge, and there's interest in what she's created coming in from all over. Remember I told you she modeled her app on a facial recognition app that already existed? Well, that app's creator reached out personally. Saying that, you know, we can further improve the app and try to get it on to the public so that it can be used and working with the um, PNNL um, engineers and scientists there. So that's the amazing response ever. When the Tri-City Herald asked the Richland teen what impact she wants to have on the world, Advaita replied, definitely helping people. Can you just imagine how many people's lives might be saved by an app that helps keep drunk drivers off the road? Yeah, she's a people helper, all right. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Brian. A police watchdog group hopes to change the state law to limit the reasons a cop can pull you over. This is the time of year various advocacy groups set their agendas for legislation to be introduced in Olympia early next year. The bill we're proposing will end traffic stops for non-moving violations. Matthew Sutherland is with the Transportation Choices Coalition. He and the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability are targeting traffic stops for such offenses as expired tabs or broken taillights. Uh, this bill will reduce disproportionate impacts on communities of color and low-income people by reducing unnecessary stops, voluntary searches, and irrelevant questioning. Related legislation would generate grant money to help people pay for vehicle fixes and avoid violations, something the coalition say would support low-income drivers and lead to safer roads. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Latest on the state economy and the governor with a budget. Those stories just ahead here for Northwest News Radio and Northwest News This Week. There's where drivers in Tacoma will need to slow down with the new year. Drivers may notice new speed limit signs being installed on city streets through the end of the year due to an ordinance that the city council passed last summer. Starting January 1st, the residential speed limit drops to 20 miles per hour. On arterial streets in the 6th Avenue, Lincoln, McKinley Hill, and Old Town Business Districts, it drops to 25. The changes are part of Vision Zero, a program with the goal of eliminating traffic fatalities and serious injuries by 2035. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News This Week. I'm Mark Christopher. All stories you might have missed covered for the week ending December the 17th. More coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. Welcome back. A group of former temp workers are in for a fat payday, we found out, after a King County auditor discovered they're owed hundreds of thousands of dollars. The King County Auditor's Office found more than one-third of the employees eligible for back benefits, payment in lieu of benefits, are owed an estimated $200,000. It seems short-term workers that aren't eligible for medical insurance and other benefits receive money instead. Audits are now routine after the county was forced to pay $24 million to a group of temp workers in the late 19th who weren't paid these same benefits. Between 2020 and 2022, the county overpaid 12 employees by $8,000. In this case, auditors found mispayments and incorrect payments dating back to 2020, involving as many as 34 people who will now split that $200,000. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Here's a story found on the desk of Carlene Johnson of Northwest News Radio. Thousands of people in our state who were overpaid on unemployment benefits may not have to pay the money back to the employment Security Department. 
Here's why. Members of the Unemployment Insurance Advisory Committee met today to give an update on the plan that will impact thousands of families after sending out notices that panicked people who were advised they'll need to pay back anywhere from hundreds to thousands of dollars. Employment Security now says the smaller overpayments of less than $1,000 will be waived. Uh, Looking at the level of effort into collecting and what makes more sense fiscally, and, and this is just a better option to go forward, it costs us a lot more money to go after this than the thousand dollars. There will be an appeal option for those with larger overpayments. This is different from the massive benefits fraud that came from mostly overseas two years ago, bilking $685 million out of ESD. The state attorney general is working to get some of that money back in cases where accounts are frozen in financial institutions. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week, ending for the week of December 17th. For a seventh time this year, the Federal Reserve have signed off on an interest rate hike. The committee raised the target range for the federal funds rate by a half percentage point, bringing the target range to four and a quarter to four and a half percent. This is a smaller increase from Jerome Powell and company than what we've seen over the last several months, but its impact will be felt nonetheless. ABC News, Derek Dennis, more into the story and shared this with our listeners. Derek, this half percent increase clearly shows the Fed is not convinced the economy is where it should be right now. Yeah, and in fact, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell uh, said as much uh, in his uh, press conference with reporters, uh, announcing that half a percentage point interest rate hike, uh, but also saying uh, that there's likely going to be more hikes to come in 2023. This half percent interest rate hike uh, is down from the 0.7 5% interest rate hike that we've seen uh, several times previously this year. And so many analysts are seeing that as a sign that the economy is moving in the right direction. It is cooling off and inflation is coming down. Uh, but it's not there yet, according to the Fed Chair Jerome Powell. He says there's still a ways to go. Now, this, of course, will make it more difficult on borrowers when it comes to credit cards, cars, homes, and the like, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's designed to do. Raising interest rates makes it more expensive for the consumers to go out and, and do these big-ticket things, like buy a house, buy a car, or rack up a lot of uh, credit card debt. Uh, getting them to slow down their spending uh, slows down the economy. So this is by design according to the Fed. Uh, the risk is slowing the economy down too much. Doing so uh, could trigger a recession. No one wants that, and so that's why the Fed is taking these in- incremental steps at raising interest rates. Not as high as we've seen previously this year, but still this half percent interest rate hike uh, will be felt by consumers in their wallets. Yeah, this most definitely is a fine line for the Fed, right? I mean, these rate hikes can certainly push the economy into recession at some point next year, but, you know, is that a result? Maybe the Fed might be willing to see in order to slow the economy down enough? Well, the Fed chair says, look, uh, he and and his other members of the Federal Reserve recognize the impact that that raising interest rates has on consumers. It makes everything cost more to borrow and and to spend on credit cards. Uh, But he says doing this is the steps that we need to take in order to turn around inflation, the highest we've seen in 40 years. And then yesterday's announcement from the Consumer Price Index uh, showing uh, 7.1% inflation is also a good sign, according to analysts, because it had been at 7.7% just the month prior in October. So all of these are said to be signals. The economy is cooling off, but it's not there yet. The Fed chair says he wants to see 
2% inflation, so there's still a ways to go. Has the Fed given us any guidance then on what to expect in the months ahead? I would think that would be more rate hikes. Well, more rate hikes for sure, but the Fed chair says, look, there's no telling what the economy will do, how the economy will react to, to these interest rate hikes and other factors like the uh, employment rate being high, uh, and, and then the fact that consumers are really sort of held hostage uh, by uh, you know private companies charging what they will for certain goods and services. And so uh, he didn't predict firmly uh, what the economy will do, but he hinted that interest rates are likely in 2023 to go up. ABC's Derek Dennis with us on the Northwest News Line. That's Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. Washington's economy appears to be on edge. The state's unemployment rate ticked upward the last two months, sitting at 4% in November. And while the labor market appears to be relatively strong... We're seeing some sustained weakness developing. That is, over the last four months, not only have we had contractions in the labor force, but the number of employed people coming out of that survey has been negative the last four months. The state economist Paul Turek says inflation Inflation remains a major concern, and the Fed's handling of it by raising interest rates could push the state and the country into recession in 2023. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Republicans aren't too happy with a $70.4 billion budget proposal the governor will send to lawmakers in January. Ryan Harris with some of the highlights. Education takes up more than half of Governor Jay Inslee's spending plan, but with climate his signature issue, it also includes money for clean energy projects, including help to local governments so they can issue more building permits as well as spending on salmon habitat restoration. But right out of the gate, Inslee said with more than 25,000 homeless people, real action is needed rather than chipping away at the problem, including more money for mental health and other services. The governor calls it a reality budget. It is not based on the theory that somehow you can dream away homelessness. We want to reduce crime and we want to reduce the squalor uh, in our communities. Republican State Senator Linda Wilson says inflation is reason enough for the governor to consider tax relief. We have the funds to do it, but instead he's spending every tax dollar on other programs that he's deemed more important. Wilson says the budget also falls short on addressing public safety. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, Ryan. It's getting difficult for doctors in our state to keep the doors open. Staffing shortages, reduced office hours, limited services and treatments. Physicians throughout our state are straining to keep their practices in operation. Many say it has to do with the economic toll of the pandemic. Jennifer Hanscom of the Washington State Medical Association, a nonprofit says a recent survey they conducted finds not only reductions in services, but nearly 50% of doctors say they've had to limit the number of Medicaid patients they see due to financial struggles. We are in a situation right now where uh, the the cost of seeing those individuals is more than uh, physicians are getting reimbursed for. The WSMA plans to ask the legislature to increase those Medicaid reimbursements, as well as certain administrative requirements from insurance carriers that can cause limited access to care. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. Still ahead, Twitter trusts safety in a case of tuberculosis found in our region. These stories in our next segment. Right now, each day, thousands of people in Pierce County are living on the streets and in cars. Bill Schwartz of Northwest News saying right now volunteers are needed for an important homeless count and outreach campaign. Let's give a listen. Just how many people do we think are living unsheltered in Pierce County? We're guesstimating at this time anywhere from around 4,000 to 4,300. 
That's John Barbie, Community Services Division Manager for Pierce County. He admits that's probably a low estimate and why their January 26 point in time count gives more accurate numbers. It also provides trends of homeless and unsheltered people. Last year's count showed more folks living in cars. So as a result of that, that changes potential some of the interventions that we may as a county decide to shift and prioritize around um, funding those interventions, whether that's through a safe parking site, whether that's through opening up more shelters to make more shelter beds available. Pierce County is looking for volunteers to help count and interview unsheltered people near Puyallup, Roy, Fife, and Key Peninsula, and every person's story matters. Having those conversations and you're really going to learn why people are are experiencing homelessness might change some minds, might maybe eliminate some of the myths that people have about why people are experiencing homelessness. Um, and so just a great opportunity to engage in community and, and, and really put us, bring us all together for this common cause. On the website, piercecounty.wa.gov slash pit, volunteers age 18 and older can apply for two to four hour shifts. There are in-person and virtual training seminars before the point in time count. And if you're not able to help that head count and survey, donations for the homeless are desperately needed. We're looking for hats, sweaters, scarves, gloves, hand warmers, um, things that we actually take um, our, our volunteers take with them and they hand out. We also do hygiene kits that we put together. A longer conversation about Pierce County's efforts to help the homeless in our Puget Sound Now podcast at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News this week ending December the 17th. A convenience for you for your time and your busy schedule. You can find the same program as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. More just ahead. You're listening to Northwest This Week. The triple-demic continues in our state with flu and COVID rates rising and RSV peaking. Ryan Harris and the latest from Northwest News Radio. 26 people, including three kids, have died from flu in our state this season, but with those rising numbers, state health isn't considering another mask mandate. However, Deputy State Health Secretary Lacey Fahrenbach says there's a reason you're hearing health officers hammering the mask message. The risks are changing. That is a reality that we're seeing this time of year with rising rates of COVID as well as other respiratory diseases, and masks work against those too. Fahrenbach also says one Washington hospitals are strained initially with so many kids with these viral diseases. There's now a lot of strain even in the adult system as well, and we're seeing that in terms of wait lists for people to be admitted. So the main message from state health is to protect yourself and others by masking up, getting all your shots, washing your hands, and testing before your holiday plans so you know what you bring to the table. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. It's not COVID, RSV, or the flu. Amanda Factor tells us about a new health scare at local schools. Someone within the Auburn School District has been diagnosed with active tuberculosis, according to the Seattle King County Public Health Department. It's now recommended that about 175 people from Auburn Mountain View and Auburn High Schools be evaluated for TB. According to the Seattle Times, the exposure happened from December of last year to November of this year. The person with active TB is receiving treatment now and is no longer at risk for infecting others. The World Health Organization announced in October that the number of people infected with tuberculosis has risen globally for the first time 
time in years. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Among many stories of the past week when it comes to Twitter, more controversy, which is now dissolved in the Trust and Safety Council. Technology reporter Joseph Min is watching it for the Washington Post. He shared this, and Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill asked him questions. Joseph, this happened very quickly, it seems. What was it that the Trust and Safety Council did for Twitter? Well, they met uh, in person, usually in smaller groups, because it's actually quite a big group, more than 50 people. Uh, and they're experts from around the world on various things, uh, digital harassment, sexual exploitation of children, lots and lots of, of, um, of subject matter expertise. And they would meet in, um, in smaller groups on a given topic with, with uh, Twitter's head of trust and safety, other, uh, other staff members to try and um, advise them on new products and how to deal with problems flaring up. This, of course, is the latest change made by Elon Musk since taking over the company. What have we heard in terms of reaction to this move? People are really upset about it. So it was also done in a very brusque manner. Musk had said things like, uh, you know, that he was going to have a content moderation council and that content moderation is one of the things that this group advised. Uh, on and it wasn't clear that he knew that there was an existing council. There was no contact to the existing council until just last week, when um, they were advised that there was going to be a meeting of the entire group with um, top executives in charge of trust and safety at Twitter. And there were like sort of many of the the group were were nervous about this. Um, they were like suspicious. Three had already resigned because of what Musk has done, but they were excited about the meeting. And then an hour, less than an hour before the meeting. An email goes out to everybody saying, well, actually, the, the council is being disbanded. Thanks, thanks for your help uh, over the years. So uh, people were not at all happy, and people are, are now commenting publicly and saying that the company is headed in a very bad direction. Is there another segment at Twitter that might pick up this work that the council did? Well, it's possible. So the, the email that was dismissing them said that this wasn't the right, they decided this wasn't the, the right means to, to get outside uh, feedback going forward. They didn't say that there would be any other uh, means for feedback. So it appears that, you know, for now, they're doing it all in-house with a vastly reduced staff, and including like many hundreds of, con- of content moderators that were on working on contract and have been dismissed. And of course, this again has to raise questions about the long term for Twitter. You know, we know some people have quit posting on the platform. What do we see as we kind of look ahead here? It, it feels very different. Um, the, 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 there's a lot more politics. There's a lot more vitriol. Musk has claimed there's fewer impressions on hate hate speech, uh, but that's not what uh, the people who track this for a living say. They say it's going up, all kinds of hate speech. And in other parts of the world, it is likely to be worse because there there were even greater cuts uh, in other countries. So uh, there's a lack of moderation, and it's much more. Anything goes, and that appeals to some people, uh, and it turns other people uh, turns other people off. That's Joseph Manning. You can read much more on this online. Go to WashingtonPost.com. As we continue, a case involving workers' rights has Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson joining the fight before the U.S. Supreme Court. Bob Ferguson is leading a coalition of attorneys general from 16 states. Glacier Northwest Inc. versus IBEW 174 challenges a worker's right to strike and the effectiveness of the National Labor Relations Board to determine whether an action is reasonable. In 2017, the two sides were embroiled in a labor dispute. When the union called a strike in the middle of a workday, crews walked away from a pricey concrete job. In a press release, the attorney general wrote, the right to strike is critical to a worker's ability to advocate for the 
themselves, a right protected under federal law. The state Supreme Court rejected the company's lawsuit, but in October, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Arguments before the high court are set for January. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. Story still to cover here for Northwest News this week. The I-5 bridge costs needs more adjustment. And pay-per-mile discussion. We'll give you the latest. And we also learned that Walmart will pay more than $62 million to our state for the shopping chain's role in the opioid epidemic. That's according to State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who says in a news release the money will come from a $3 billion multi-state resolution. Also, Walmart will more tightly monitor opioid prescriptions and prevent patients from seeking multiple prescriptions. Some conditions still have to be met before the settlement becomes final, including at least 43 states signing off and at least 85% of litigating and non-litigating local governments and the settling states must join. If approved, Washington's amount will be split between the state, county, and city governments and must be used to treat the opioid epidemic. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News This Week. I'm Mark Christopher. All stories you might have missed covered for the week ending December the 17th. We're back after this. This is Northwest News This Week. As we continue, Washington State is one step closer to getting a pay-per-mile tax. Where's it stand for now? Northwest News Radio's Jeff Algela. Looking to replace the fall-off in revenue from the gas tax due to hybrid and electric vehicles, the Washington Transportation Commission is now recommending a two-and-a-half-cent-per-mile road usage tax. But there are still many logistical hurdles to overcome, including just how the number of miles driven would be tracked and... Exemptions for miles driven out of state or on private roads but without using any technology, specifically GPS technology, to record the location of those miles driven. That's consultant Travis Dunn. The gas tax has largely been used to fund road and highway maintenance and construction. And with electric cars becoming far more prevalent, the state simply isn't bringing in enough money. But we are still several years away from any pay-per-mile tax, and the state legislature would have to give final approval. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. The long-delayed Interstate 5 replacement bridge between Washington and Oregon over the Columbia now has an eye-popping new price tag. The most recent price check on replacing the aging, outdated, congested span over the Columbia River came in at about 3 to $4 billion. Now, Project Administrator Frank Green says inflation is taking its toll. The range for the estimate is... $5 billion to $7.5 billion. To which he adds... The most likely is uh, approximately $6 billion. The increasing costs of labor and materials have bumped up the bottom line, but Program Administrator Greg Johnson points out the project's scope has also increased. Having um, high-capacity transit in the form of light rail, having uh, walk and bike connections across the river to once again make this as multimodal as possible. Funding sources include the states of Washington and Oregon, the federal government, and eventually tolls. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Corwin. For the first time this past week, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have been able to produce more energy through nuclear fusion than was used to ignite it. It's quite a story. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm called it one of the most impressive scientific feats in the 21st century. This milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero carbon abundant fusion energy 
powering our society. Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice found more to the story in the Washington Post. Nuclear fission, splitting the atom, has been mastered for decades, but never nuclear fusion, smashing atoms together to release heat energy. What did we learn today about the process and how this breakthrough is possible? Well, this is a, a pretty big deal, according to the scientists and, and technologists at the Department of Energy, because the thing they did that they had not done previously is they put at the, at the, at the target they were aiming at, this little pellet, they put more, uh, a certain amount of energy in, laser energy, and they got more out than they put in. So they call this ignition. They, it, it's not just that it's fusion it's that it's fusion that, that, that gives you more uh, bang for your buck, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the breakthrough. Uh, if, if you look at the overall amount of energy it took to do this, including the electricity to create these lasers, it's not a net energy gain. But at the point of contact, uh, more came out than went in. And this is a first that this has happened in a, in a stable way. Why is fusion so much more attractive than fission for those that want to create carbon-free energy? So if you wanted to use nuclear fusion, it doesn't have radioactive waste. It basically relies on, on seawater, hydrogen. I mean, you, you, you just put hydrogen in and you get a lot of energy out. I mean, think about the difference between an atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb. A hydrogen bomb is so much more powerful. That's because they use fusion uh, reactions in the hydrogen bomb. But no one has ever been able to do this, though, in a, in a controlled, sustained, you know, commercially viable, practical way. And that probably is still decades away. Uh, today's uh, announcement, you know, could be described as a scientific breakthrough more than, you know, a practical engineering breakthrough. There is a national security or national defense Im uh, implication with this uh, breakthrough as well, right? I mean, there, there is more to this than just creating energy for our cell phones. So the, the, this was done at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is part of the Department of Energy and part of the, the very large government program to maintain the security of the nuclear arsenal. And so by using this kind of technology, they... Uh, they can understand what is taking place in a nuclear explosion, and it's a safe way to study that. Um, and that's one of the things that they were talking about today, that this is helpful just as a way of, of uh, understanding, you know, the weapons that we uh, have in our arsenal. There's a lot more to come from this story, and you can find Joel's coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. Joel Achenbach. Sport fans, say goodbye to two living legends and talk about icons here in the Northwest. We'll get to those stories. Want to bake a better cookie? Northwest News Radio's Kathy O'Shea says an often overlooked grain can add a delicious and nutritious touch. Quinoa is high in fiber, protein, and vitamins, and it's gluten-free, but it's been mostly overlooked by consumers. Researchers are working to change that. A study at Washington State University found two types of quinoa bread for Washington State produce a nutritious flour additive for cookies that has good potential, particularly in the gluten-free market. This study will help researchers decide which strain to release to growers next year and inform the ways the grain can be marketed. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. You're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of December 17th. I'm not done yet.
Northwest This Week continues. For the week ending December 17th, the hype of Seahawks football up, up and downs. Here we go. Our hockey team, the Kraken, still doing well, even though a couple of losses on a road trip. And we have to talk about a couple of icons here that said goodbye this past week. Football, losing what's called the mad scientist. Bill Schwartz looks back at a former Washington State Cougars coach, Mike Leach, an innovator who had a huge impact on a game and people. Listen to an explanation of air raid passing drills and you were often left dazed and confused. Okay, we got all four quarterbacks throwing and you might run the stick route. This guy outside's vertical. Um, this guy here runs an option. Or you might have double slants. You might have this guy's vertical and this guy's an out. Michael Charles Leach got into football coaching as a teenager but stepped away from sports to earn a law degree. Uh, I wanted to do, at the end, I wanted to do like products liability as in... Uh, you know, if that camera explodes all over that guy, we'd sue the camera company and their insurance company, you see. Conversations with Leach, including one on CBS 60 Minutes, often veered to topics unrelated to football, like pirates. I brought this sword in, this uh, pirate sword replica, and talked about, you know, how are you going to swing your sword? Born in tiny Susanville, California, Mike Leach's impact on young men at a game have been enormous. In 1987, he worked with Iowa Wesleyan head coach Hal Mummy, who had invented something called the air raid at a Texas high school. Five receivers spread across the field with quarterbacks acting like basketball point guards. It's as if when he walks into a football program and grabs the quarterback, he, sp he sprinkles fairy dust on him because the quarterback becomes a different human being. Most defenses couldn't stop it. Moneyball author Michael Lewis says Leach's system was perfect for lesser athletes and schools like Texas Tech and Washington State to succeed against the power program. If you look at a Big 12 football game now uh, versus 10 years ago, it's a completely different event. It's because everybody's watching Mike Leach's offense. A unique perspective about life and a game is what Coach Leach leaves behind. There's, there's spitting, there's fighting, there's ripped jerseys, there's uh, somebody grabbing somebody's throat. I mean, it's why you have football. Mike Leach died at the all-too-young age of 61. He is survived by his wife and four children. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. Now, for a member of the Seattle Supersonics NBA title team, who also said goodbye for the week, Eric Heinz sharing that Paul Silas left us at the age of 79. Paula Silas Guy says her father died Saturday night of cardiac arrest. Paul Silas played for two NBA championship teams in Boston and a third in Seattle and was a five-time all-defensive team selection. After a 16-year career as a player, Silas became a head coach with four teams, winning exactly 400 games, including playoffs. And he was the first pro coach for LeBron James. I wanted the greatest human beings I've ever been around. Um, you know, the start of my journey in this league started with him. His command, his principles, his attention to detail, but his love for, you know, family. As Players Union president, he oversaw a time where rosters grew, salaries rose, and benefits improved. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. And there you have it. Whether you're a news junkie or just want to know what's going on and the effect of news in your world, whether lifestyle and recreation and sports, also in health and education, it's a big place and a treasure that we call the Northwest. And we thank you for relying on us to bring you the stories that affect you most. Northwest News This Week, heard every week at this time, here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7. And as I mentioned, it is a podcast available anytime at nwnewsradio.com. In fact, we also archive 
previous week. So you want to talk about ketchup, there's your source. And if you enjoy this program as a podcast, maybe you'll share a rating and review. It's simple to do at Apple Podcasts. And we thank you for that. Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of December 17th. Produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. Thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of all of us here at Northwest News, happy holidays. We'll see you next time.